I want to tell you what we are doing today and what we're not doing today. I am not giving you a history lesson. So if you ask when, okay. I am not giving you, for the most part, a library catalog. Which means, if you're asking me which books and what, for the most part, I'm not going to talk about which books are what. What we're going to be doing in this class, we're going to be taking the Torah, breaking it down into different conceptual categories. Um, can someone get me a, um, a book? What kind of book? I don't care. Yeah, Any book from the shelf. Not that one. It's not a sitter. <laughs> this is good. Okay. This is a book. It's a book that has Torah in it. Which category is this book going to be in? It will be in many books because this book has many pages with lots of words on it and each words, all these words contain different things. Some of these things can be put into one of your categories, some of these things will be in another category. So we are not going to categorize books, we are going to categorize concepts. And so while it is true that some books are, are primarily or even exclusively in one of these categories, most books in the Jewish library actually contain many of these categories, okay? What we're going to try to understand is what are these categories? How do they interact with each other? Um, there are a lot of categories and subcategories, and we're going to try and move quickly and clearly. Okay? All right. So we're going to start with our first category. Our first category is Torah. If you like making charts, you can just copy my chart as we're ready to make. Thank you. Okay. The Torah, the word Torah means instruction. So our first category is instruction. Instruction from who and to whom? Instructions from God and to people. Primarily the Jewish people, but not exclusively the Jewish people. Okay, so the first category is God's instructions to humanity at large and the Jewish people in particular. That is called Torah. So many times when a rabbi says, we learn in the Torah, the Torah says, the Torah teaches, they simply mean God's instructions to all of humanity. Okay? And the Torah was given from Hashem to the Jewish people through Moshe at Mount Sinai. Okay. Now the first thing we're going to do is we're going to break the Torah into two parts. I'm sure some of you have heard this before, but we're going to like I said, do it more conceptually. Okay? The two parts are, there is a written... Torah, and there's an oral Torah. I'm letting you know ahead of time I cannot spell, so I'll make spelling mistakes, and you'll decide if they're really that bad and need to be correct. Okay. Now, does anyone know what the difference is between written Torah and oral Torah? And if you say, well, the written Torah is written down and the oral Torah is spoken, um, that's wrong, because if you're ever have opened up the written Torah and read it out loud, guess what? The written Torah was just spoken. And, contrary to popular belief, the oral Torah has been written down basically since the time of Moshe. People had private notes, their own, right? Like just people have notebooks, people wrote, wrote down the oral Torah. So what is the difference between the oral Torah and the written Torah? Anyone know? Yeah. I'm going to take a stab at it. Uh, the written Torah is exact, exactly God's instructions. Has been warped through. The no. Day? No. No. Okay. Not. No. Very, very, very wrong. Unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> okay. The, we're going to start with the oral Torah. The oral Torah are ideas. 
Ideas are things you can understand. So the rule is like this. If you can understand it, it's oral Torah. Okay? So when you read the stories in the Chumash and you understood those stories, those stories are actually oral Torah. When you read a translation of the Chumash in English, that's oral Torah. When you read the Chumash in the Hebrew with the vowels, and you know how to vowel it, because you guys know that in Hebrew there's no actual vowels? That's oral Torah, right? So one of my favorite verses describes what you should offer as a sacrifice. Um, and the verse is that you're supposed to offer... This is what you're supposed to offer as a sacrifice. Now, the way I choose to vowelize is as Ishak Vushim, pickled women. <laughs> and if you open a Torah scroll, you can't argue that I'm wrong. Because Kvushim does mean pickled, and Isha just mean woman. So you're supposed to offer a pickled woman as a sacrifice. Or you could say it's Isha, which means fire offering, and Kvasim means sheep. But we can debate that later. So even knowing literally what, what the Torah means is part of the oral Torah. Knowing what the ideas are, what is the Torah saying, that thing that we do with our mind and we try and understand, it's oral Torah. So if you're using your mind to relate to the Torah, you are in fact relating to the oral Torah. The written Torah are letters. And these letters have two forms the letters that are written down in ink on parchment, and the letters uttered by your mouth. And what that means is like this. If you take a book of Torah, and you start saying letters, like I'll start doing that right now, Bereshis bara lokim eis ha-shamayim ve-eis and you have no idea what you're saying, are you involved in the study of Torah? And the answer is, well, if the letters that you are saying with your mouth are the letters of the written Torah, then it's Torah. If you are looking or holding a piece of paper or parchment that has the letters, then that is Torah. What makes it Torah are the letters. The letters are not merely vessels for ideas. The letters have a sanctity independent of the ideas. If you want to think of it like this, as an analogy, the letters are like gemstones. And the ideas are like pieces of jewelry. What does a piece of jewelry do? It takes a gemstone and puts it in a setting that allows you to appreciate it. But you can take that same gemstone out of the setting, right? Mm -hmm. Out of a ring and put it in a pendant, right? Put it in a tiara. So the letters are sacred letters, independent of their meaning. The Ramban, in his commentary on the Chumash says that when God had the Torah originally, it was just a string of letters. The very fact that we even space it out and pronounce them and make it into certain words, it's all part of the oral Torah. In fact, what's the first word in the Torah? Does anyone know the first word in the Torah? First word. Well, no. See, the problem is that the first, the sequence of letters The sequence of letters, that's the first sequence of letters. Now, I could read that as one word, which is beratious, in the beginning of, which is grammatically problematic for the rest of the verse. Or, but I could also read it as barashis, he created six. I could read it as beis, ratios, two firsts. 
And in the level, uh, when we talk about the written Torah, that's all irrelevant because the only thing that is, matters is do you have the right letters in the right shape and in the right order? The idea that those letters have any meaning, any ideas is already oral Torah. Okay. okay. Wait, so the, all those things are true based on how you yeah. I, how, where I choose to pause in my reading, what vowels we choose mm-hmm. to put. Now, choose is the wrong word. What? So when God tells us how we are supposed to relate to his letters, that is the oral Torah. Now, why was this oral? Because the best way to make sure someone understands you is to talk to them. Because when they talk to you, you can make sure that they understand and you understand. Right? For instance, what am I doing right now? I'm using your body language to see if you're with me. I'm allowing you to ask questions. Right? If I were to write this down as an essay and then put it out on the internet, I have to assume that the reader reads exactly the way I intended them to read. How many people read exactly the way the author intends them to read? I don't know, zero, but <laughs> not a lot. On the other hand, if, if we have to have a conversation and go back and forth to ensure that I feel you understood what I'm saying, okay, well then we can ensure that the ideas are being transmitted. So the rule God set up is that the oral Torah has to be taught orally. You shouldn't use a text. One person should teach another person. And actually, many people should teach many people because we obviously know that if one person teaches another person we have the telephone problem where things get corrupted over time, which I'm not gonna talk about today. So when you want to communicate ideas, the most effective way to do that is to actually communicate with another person face to face. And so the sanctity of the ideas of the wisdom of God's instruction, the Torah, that's the oral Torah. And then there's also a series of written letters or, or pronounced letters and those are sacred in their own right. So when we are in show or in the synagogue and the Torah is read, nobody knows what it means. The guy who's reading it isn't paying attention to what it means because he's trying to make sure he's pronouncing the words right. The guy who's called up the Torah makes the blessing, he's not paying attention to what it means. So why are we doing this? Because those words, those letters are sacred. Okay? They have a they have a they have a a a value that transcends what we can make of them. And then what we can make of God's instruction, that's called the oral Torah. So it turns out that when are we actually studying the written Torah? When we're looking at the When you're reading the book out loud, when you're holding the book, right? but, but if you really think studying is really grappling with ideas, so really when you're studying, any studying, you're really studying. But you said that it was specifically the written Torah. When you, when you, when are you, when, if you're studying the written Torah, you're actually really studying the oral Torah. The oral Torah. You're just grounding yourself in these strings of letters. If you want to do the mitzvah of connecting to the written Torah, you have to say the actual Hebrew letters properly. And not interpret? And not interpret. How do you do that? It's like your language is Hebrew. How do you not? Well, then you can do two things at once, which is great. Can you, though? Can you really not interpret and just read monotonally? Well... Uh, there's 150, there are 150 psalms, and I can save them in a, under an hour. Okay. So, mine, the mind is unfortunately somewhere else, and the mouth is on autopilot. Okay. So, yes, it can. I'm not saying it's ideal, but it can be done. Or, again, somebody could just not know the Hebrew language. Yeah. So, you can never study, so you read the Ritz and Tara? Because as soon as you're studying it, you're doing the it, That's right. 
Right, so you could be engaged in them simultaneously. So when we do mm-hmm. things like studying the Chumash, we're actually engaging with them as a whole. When we study Halacha and we want to understand how Jewish law, it, it's very rare that these are actually treated as separate. And that's, conceptually, these are two categories, but in real life, like the only time you have a book that is just written Torah is literally a Torah scroll. But once you get a Chumash, that's, not already, that's already written and all mixed together because they put the vowels in there. And knowing which vowels to put, that's already... Because that tells you, okay? Ideas. It tells you ideas. It tells you what those letters are supposed to mean. Okay? There are words, but they're not only letters. So that's somewhat true. The reason why that's somewhat true is that you would think that the spacing in the written Torah actually parallels the word spacing, but there are actually exceptions to that. Yeah, so like there is a, there is a, a, a verse in the Torah which starts like this. dashes are because this is Hashem's name and I don't want to write it because I can't erase it. So there's just the hey there, space, lamed, and then the four-letter name. Now, how would you read that? You would read ha, or ho, or something, right? As one separate word, and then la Hashem. But in fact, that is not how it is read, and that's not what it means. It actually is read hal, so these two are read as one word. You make, when you read it out loud and interpret it, you actually treat this as one word, and this is a separate word. So even the spacing in the Torah mm-hmm. doesn't perfectly line up with what we call words. It 99.9% of the time does, but there are enough exceptions to show you that that is not a fixed rule. That's how do we know? Like, where did that come from? Okay. When God told us, how do I want you to read the book? Oh, okay. Like, again, how do we know that you're not supposed to offer pickled women as a sacrifice? That's true. Someone did, I'm sure. What? Someone did, I'm sure. You're <laughs> <laughs> saying it's not just the, it's my own warped imagination. Okay. Okay. So this is so this is very oral Torah means the ideas that we can engage with, and the written Torah is just the strings of letters themselves in the right order, in the right shape. The letters have to be shaped correctly, etc., etc. Yes. When you say something like Isha Kavushim, which apparently means pickled women, are you? Is there any part of written Torah in there? Since those are still technically the right letters. So I'll tell you a story. There was once a there was once a a, 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 a wife of a very famous rabbi who said to Hillen all day every day. One time she complained to her son that how come she doesn't know the till and the songs by heart? She's constantly saying them. And her son said to her son said to her um, mother because you say different words every time. Her pronunciation was so bad that. Every time she said the psalm, she pronounced the words differently, so you obviously never learn anything by heart that way. The famous rabbi, her husband, was so upset. He said, you don't understand how powerful her tilim is, how powerful her psalms are, because at the end of the day, even if it's a total botching of the pronunciation, it's still rooted in the right letters. So I will leave it at that. Where is this? No, story that's in the side. Yep. Okay. Moving on, because we have... Lots to cover and yes. little time. Maybe she like had dyslexia. <laughs> I want me to make something up. <laughs> I wasn't there. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, the written Torah is divided into broadly three parts. Okay. One is called the Torah, for convenience sake. How many Torahs do you think we're going to have on this list? Oh my god, if it's three, what's the point? 
Well, we have Torah. If there's Torah. three Torahs in the list, there's gonna be many Torah. Torah. This is why. This is why when people say Torah is confusing. It's like yeah, words, words have many meanings. So Torah, and I'm going to give you the Hebrew, and there's a reason why I'm going to give you the Hebrew. I'll, I'll explain. I'll translate it, but then I'm going to explain why I'm giving you the Hebrew here. Nevi'im, and I am Ashkenazi, so you're gonna have to put up with it. Yep. Suvim. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. You want me to be Yemenite and it's Ktuvim? <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, this is what yeah, I, I, I got my ordination from a Yemenite Chabad rabbi, so we learned a lot of a lot of things going on. Okay. Um, it's broken up into three parts. The acronym for this is called Tanakh from Torah and Abim Ktuvim. Torah, we've already covered, that means instruction. Okay. Now, I'm sure everyone has heard that there are 613 mitzvahs, 613 commandments. What makes the Torah section special is that all of the commandments that we have in the oral Torah have to be linked up to letters in the Torah section of the written Torah. This is also known, by the way, as the Chosh. So, if there is a mitzvah in the Torah, where the oral Torah says we are commanded to do something, one of the 613 mitzvahs, there must be a string of letters in the Torah section of the written Torah, in the Chumash, also known as the five books of Moses, that's linked up to that. And there is not allowed to be any more mitzvahs in the other two sections. That's what makes the Torah different. So why is it that we treat the five books of Moshe separate from the other 24 books of the Tanakh? Because those five books, they contain the letters associated with the mitzvahs. These have no mitzvahs in them. That's what makes the Torah distinct. And that's why it's called Torah instruction, because it's the one that houses the instructions of the mitzvahs. The difference between Avim and Ksuvim has to do with the nature of the revelation. The basic difference okay, is that revelation can occur in two forms, basically. One is strictly called Nevoah, which is usually translated as prophecy. And the other is called Ruach HaKodesh, which is usually translated as divine inspiration. But they're both, both basically forms of prophecy. The key difference between them is that in Nevoah, the prophet is consciously aware that they are experiencing a prophecy. And in Ruach HaKodesh, they are not consciously aware that they are experiencing a prophecy. Okay? So to make that very simple, in the Nevi'im, when Isaiah says things, that's because he consciously knows God wants him to, to write these letters down in this order. When King David's writing the Psalms, he doesn't necessarily have a conscious experience that awareness that he's supposed to write the words in this way with it spelled this way. He doesn't have that. And it is only later on when um, other prophets come and analyze his writings, they say these were written with Ruach HaKodesh. These were written with this divine inspiration. On a practical level, there's basically no difference between them. They're simply grouped in two separate groupings because of the mode by which the prophet received his prophecy. And that's why I don't want to translate one as prophets and one as writings because they're both prophetic, just two different versions of prophecy. In practice, there's no difference between them. These things, the only ideas that you're allowed to find in the Nevi'im and because the mitzvahs all go back to the Torah, here all you can have are um, encouragement, lessons, I, um, moral, moral teachings, 
but you're not allowed to have any actual mitzvahs here. So we can read the Nevi'im and Ksuvim and the ideas that are in the oral Torah that are associated with the letters here contain a lot of wisdom, a lot of truth, a lot of important you know, instruction, but not the actual basis for the 613 mitzvahs. Okay. Traditionally, Jews do not do a lot of just reading of the Tanakh on its own, and the reason for that is because the Tanakh is just a list of letters. What we do is we engage in the mixing and matching of the oral with the written. So again, and I want to point out that if you opened any book and learned a story in the Tanakh, or you read Psalms, you had a class in Tillim, you're actually engaged in studying written or oral Torah. Oral Torah, but in, grounded in those strings of letters of the written Torah. Yes? Are those the terminal points on the written side of the chart? Are those the what? Like terminal points on the chart, like we're not subdividing any further? On this, yeah, that's where don't this. This is not so interesting, because all the fun stuff happens in the oral Torah, because that's where all the ideas are. Right? So, again, written Torah is just letters, the Torah part, the five books of Moshe, are different because they contain the letters associated with the 613 mitzvahs. And the Nevi'im Suvim do not. There can be no new mitzvahs there. And the difference between the Nevi'im Suvim, between the so-called prophets and writings, is simply the mode that the prophet, the modality of the prophecy that the prophet had. But practically, there's not a big difference between them. Okay. The oral Torah. The oral Torah is divided into two categories. Have you ever heard that the whole world can be divided into two categories? Potatoes and? Potatoes. Not potatoes. Okay. The whole world is divided into two categories, and one is potatoes. The other category has to be? No. Okay, so the two categories are? Halacha and, wait for it, what's the other category? Not halacha. Not halacha. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, okay. Okay. I, you know, I just, I, I, you know, constantly think about the more effective ways of teaching. You said modified modify things or change things. Okay. So you have halacha, not halacha. I'm going to say what halacha is, and then we're going to talk about not halacha. You can tell why we're going to talk about not halacha from where it is on the chart. Yeah. Because how much is it going to go underneath there? A lot. No. Not uh, a lot. That's why that's on the edge, right? Mm. This is on the edge. This is where it gets complicated. <laughs> this is actually quite simple. Okay. Halacha literally means the way, the path. It usually is understood as the law. And halacha is the part of the Torah, meaning God's instruction, that is oral, meaning ideas we are meant to understand, not just strings of letters that teaches us how we should go about living our lives. So what you should do, what you should not do, what you're required to do, which is not the same thing as should. There's things you should but you're not required to. What you're not allowed to do, which is different than what you shouldn't do. There are things you shouldn't do, but you're still allowed to do them. Okay? Anytime God's instruction boils down to you should, you must, you can, you're required, you're not allowed to do, say, or think, and yes, this also includes thinking, then it is called Halacha. Anytime the ideas are not that, they're not those kinds of concrete instructions guiding what we do, what we say, and what we think, but rather they're just other ideas that we explore and debate and think about and ponder, but you know, all the wisdom stuff, then we call that not halacha. Okay? So, in the not halacha category, let's run through some of the things that are in the not halacha category. 
This is in no particular order. Assist. I'm going to explain briefly what each of these things are. Kabbalah. Musr. I'm giving you the Hebrew names because they have nuances as to how they're understood that are different than maybe their English translation, but I want to give them some explanation. I'm going to explain what these things are. Now, what do all these things, five things have in common? They're not halacha. They're not the Torah telling you that you have to do this, you don't have to do this, you should do this, you should do this. These are talking about good ways. Good things. Deep things. Wise things. Okay. Basically, this is all the stuff that people who don't want to be religiously observant like because they can continue then to go do whatever they want to do otherwise. This is all the stuff that the people who don't want to have a relationship with God like because they can just engage in certain lifestyle choices and then don't have to think about God or deeper meaning. That's the difference. Okay. This is the thing that people (laughs) who don't want to be religious like. And this is the thing that people don't want to have a relationship with God like because... You know, I can keep Shabbos and not think about God, uh-huh. right? I can keep kosher and not think about God, right? Yeah. Okay. I can walk around dressed like this and not think about God. But it's hard to do these things and not have God be part of the picture. Okay. So, very, very briefly, we're going to go through some of these things. Chassidus. Chassidus are all of the ideas that are trying to get at the inherent and essential bond between Hashem and the Jewish people. That Hashem and the Jewish people are united in a deep, essential way. How do we understand that? How can we make sense of that? What does that mean? All the ideas associated with that, that's what Chassidus is all about. Okay? So, now, when you take one, and what you're going to see is when you take one central idea and you start to elaborate and explain it and you want to maybe say connect it back to some of the strings of letters in the written Torah, you get a lot of stuff, you get a lot of books, and a lot of discussions, and a lot of different things. Kabbalah is the ideas that teach, the ideas that help us understand what is going on in the realms that are not physical, the spiritual realms. Okay? So, the subject matter in Hasidus is you and God, and your essential bond. The subject matter in Kabbalah is not you and not God. It's charts, stuff, angels and spheres and lights and vessels and mystical things that nobody knows what they're talking about. Okay. Some people really like Kabbalah. Some people really hate Kabbalah. I think. What? Sounds like you don't like Kabbalah. I love Kabbalah. I don't like what most people think Kabbalah is. Oh, okay. Okay. Musar. Musr is the part of the, um, the part of the not halacha that tells us about all the bad stuff about physical human existence. 
So like. Just like, you know, like things like um, living your life because you want to um, be strong and healthy is basically just wanting to be a sophisticated horse. There's nothing noble about that. That would be Musser. Um, there's, a, there's a great Musser, there's a great joke which really encapsulates the, that, that, the, the, this, this idea of what Musser is all about, which is that there was once a yeshiva bachar, a yeshiva student, he was crying, and the, his mentor came over to him and says, uh, young man, why are you crying? And he says, well, life is so hard. All the animals, life is just so easy for them. They don't have to go to work. They don't have all these, you know, their, their food is just available out in the open, and life is so difficult. Why is life so difficult for them? And so the mentor says, well, you're a human being, and human beings have this deep potential. We can strive for nobler things, and we have to work hard, and animals are just mere animals, so everything's just available for them. And after finishing his long speech, then the buffer bursts into even more tears, and he says, why are you crying now? I just explained to you that it's so hard because you're a human with all this noble potential. He says, well, why didn't God just make me an animal? <laughs> to which the mentor said, young man, you are an animal. <laughs> um, now, there's different approaches within Muster, different thoughts. And Muster, by the way, there's something called the Muster Movement. There was a revival of Muster in the 1800s, but Muster goes all the way back, you know, throughout all of Jewish history. Okay? And I want to be clear, even though I'm making this a bunch of categories, just like the books are interwoven, in real life, these ideas intermingle with each other. Okay? So, Muster will tell you, like, for instance, how you should come to truly regret your sins. How you should see sins as truly evil. It tells you um, how things that you think are innocent are actually really um, detrimental to your spiritual well-being. Things that are maybe perfectly permitted are actually abhorrent in some grand, deep sense. Stuff like that. That's most certain. Yeah. Can you give like, I mean, like a, a more concrete example? Of a specific idea of Musser? Yeah. yeah. Um, you should fast a lot. Because when you fast, a lot of few things happen. Number one, you break your attachment to physical things. Number two, you're weaker. So your lusts and desires become more muted. Okay? And num- um, so you feel the desire to sin less. Number three, you will actually sin less because you have less energy to sin. Okay? Um, and, and, and if that's not enough, if that's not enough, you can do some other stuff like roll around in the snow. So that you like, you know, yeah, it can be very intense. That's an, those are those are some those are some Musser ideas to like help you like really disassociate one of the negative sides of being a physical human being. Okay, or another or another thing, how you should, or or or, or another thing, how you should how you should think about the the damage you're doing um, to your soul um, in order to scare yourself out of sin. Those are Musser ideas. And I want to be clear, these are Torah. These are, you might sit as focus on different things, but Musser is a real aspect of Torah. Um, okay. There are, there's, there was, there's, there's a famous um, response of one of the rabbis um, in Prague who lived in the early, late 16, early 1700s, and someone had committed adultery, and he wrote to him saying, how do I repent? And he prescribes a series of fasts and, and um, self-mortification to help him like, really t- tear out his um, attachment to his physical side. 
as part of that you know repentance process. So that's you know if you really take one. Now there are other views of Musar. There's other things in Musar, but Musar is always focused on the fact that being a human being. Because we are physical, there's something fundamentally bad about that, and that needs to be contained, managed, overcome, denigrated sometimes, you know, crushed and destroyed if possible, depending on the exact... I, you know, there's a lot of ideas there. Okay? So, Hasidus, the essential bond every Jew has with God. Kabbalah, mystical reality. Musr, how to break down and, uh, and demolish the negative side of the physical... Chakira, how do you cultivate an appreciation for the spiritual? It's entirely, it's an entirely different thing to say that being an animal is bad. It's an entirely different thing to say then, well, okay, well then what is really good? What is really, what is spirituality? What is its reality? How do I come to appreciate it? You know, some people go to a museum and they look through and they see all the pictures. They walk through and some people stop and they know how to appreciate fine art. Chakira is the part that it's about the ideas to help guide a person to learn to appreciate what the good of spirituality really is. Okay. And then there's something called Derech which is like basic decency. Can you give a book example of Chakira? A book example of Chakira? Um, I can give you a book example that mixes Chakira and Musr, which is Chayvah Salavavis, The Duties of the Heart. It is a nice blend of these two. And you'll usually find, like I said, so Musr is about, is about denigrating the physical and Chakira is about learning how to appreciate and value the spiritual. And so you often will find these things mixed together because they, they kind of are two sides of a coin, if you will. Yes? What would you say is the biggest, most... Chassidus doesn't care about spiritual worlds. It cares about God and you, and that's it. That's it. If you need spiritual worlds to explain, then then we'll do that. But what it's about like, well, not every version of Chassidus talks about those things. It depends on how much explaining you need to do. Sometimes you need to bring in other ideas to explain something. But Chassidus is simply about you and God are essentially one. And everything else is about coming to help understand that in a more thorough way. So if you need to use Kabbalah, if Chassidus might borrow Kabbalistic ideas to explain it, it might even use examples from Halacha to explain things, but it's not really, it's really interesting about this very simple point. You and Hashem are essentially bound up as one. Kabbalah is about there's a bunch of spiritual worlds, do you understand how they work? Musr is your physical, do you see that being physical is bad? Chakira is, you have an ability to appreciate spirituality, have you developed it? And Derek Eretz is, you live amongst other people. Do you know how to go around like being a mensch, as they say? Yes? I feel like we've been taught that like Hasidus and Musher are very like opposites. Is that true? Only in emphasis. Only in, only in emphasis. Okay. Which means that if, if you're going to, that Hasidus incorporates elements of Musher. So, but if your primary focus is on your central bond with God, then there's a limit to how much denigrating the physical you're going to be able to do, because after all, God chose to make you a physical being. Mm-hmm. But, but it's not that there's no element of this. So like, in real life, these things are very blended, but there are different, they are kind of core ideas that then branch off to other ideas and mix with each other. And 
It's like if you go to university and then there's something called psychology and another thing called economics. It's not that they really exist in two totally separate spaces because people have psycho- psyches and then they go buy things in the market. So they interact with each other. Okay. Yes. Sorry, uh, when you were talking about Kabbalah, you mentioned chalk and stuff. Yes. Is that just how you say people put Kabbalah into a... Many people, not all people. There's different views of how to approach knowing the mystical world. Some people are very into charting things out. Some people are very anti-charting things out. Okay. Um, now, here's the thing. All of these ideas can be conveyed in different forms. So you can use philosophical explanations, abstract definitions. You can use real-life stories, made-up analogies. But the point is, the form doesn't matter. As long as it's these ideas are being communicated, then it is Torah. And the very important thing is that if a form has become adopted as a way of communicating that idea, then that form itself becomes Torah. So if somebody comes up with a good analogy to convey one of, the, uh, one of these core ideas in some way, then that, anal- that analogy is then used over again by people. That analogy becomes part of Torah because the form that the idea is communicated is itself part of the Torah as well. Okay? So a lot of things that we often don't think of as Torah are actually Torah. So all the Hasidic stories that people hear that are, that are said over... Um, different parables that you know the, the, the rabbi says when he gives his speech on Shabbos, those things are actually Torah. Even if, he, even if he made them up, if they are accurately communicating ideas here to people, then those become part of Torah. They shouldn't be thrown out. It, so the rules of throwing things out is a whole other discussion, but you, that's, you shouldn't talk about them in the bathroom. Because the one good kind of line of Torah versus not Torah is that you should never ever talk about Torah in the bathroom because the Torah is holy and the bathroom is not a holy place the exception is if someone's sitting in the bathroom you can tell them to stop sitting <laughs> yeah. okay. alright um, yeah. so then like why do we have a bracha over going to the bathroom because like if we have a bracha thanking God that we were able to go to the bathroom okay you have to right. say it once you leave, yeah. You have right. to, after you leave, right, and after right. you're cleaning, yeah. yeah. Um, back in the day when people had a lot more spiritual sensitivity, you actually, if you went to the bathroom, because we all have angels that accompany us, you were supposed to say to the angels, pardon me, but this is the way of the flesh. And I know it's an embarrassment for you spiritual beings, but just wait for me here, I have to go. Uh, but, but we don't, what? They do mind, they find it abhorrent. Angels cannot, well, because... You know, it says still in the Torah. The angels are really, they, they, the, the whole physical side of human beings they just think is abhorrent and disgusting and repellent and just, they don't understand why God would make such a creature. We're terrible. No, 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 they're just different. Like, you know, I don't understand why God made cockroaches, but like. I mean, when I see a kid take a but, you're, but you and the kid didn't have a lot more in common, common than you and the angel in that regard. I believe that. Okay. All right. So now we come to the halacha. Now, one other thing before we go forward is what happens if you are connecting one of these ideas over here to some of the words and letters over here? What is that called? So I can come up and I can explain chassidus, right? But I could also do, explain chassidus or Chakir, there's any of these ideas, not with a story or a parable or an abstract definition, but I can also link it up to a verse, to some of the words and letters in the written Torah. What do we call it when those things are being linked together? Torah. Midrash. Midrash 
is seeing how the ideas are reflected in the letters and the letters contain the ideas. Okay? Which, by the way, means that there are non-halachic medrash. So that's like when the rabbi explains a verse and the lesson we learn from it in our lives in the weekly Torah reading. He's engaged in an act of medrash because he's taking ideas, showing them how they're in the written Torah. But the ideas he's talking about are non-halachic. Okay? People often think medrash means stories, but that's wrong. Sometimes in looking at and conveying the ideas, it turns out that there's like other elements to the stories in the Chumash that just weren't written in the Chumash. But medrash is not about stories. Medrash is about the ideas and connecting it back to the written Torah. Which, by the way, means if that there is non-halachic medrash, then it also has to be halachic medrash. The law, Jewish law, is actually all connected back to the written Torah, which means that every Jewish, the Jewish law is also medrash. Some people say, oh, that's just medrash. I don't, I don't care about medrash, it's just medrash. It's not. What they fail to realize is that medrash is not a book. Medrash is an idea. That the ideas in the oral Torah and the letters of the written Torah are linked, and you can go from one to the other and back again. You can analyze the letters and draw out ideas. You can look at the ideas and see how they're encoded in the letters. And when you do that, you make the Torah whole. You make it a cohesive entity. And so all the ideas of the Torah can go back, of the oral Torah, go back to the written Torah, and every nuance of the letters of the written Torah contains ideas in the oral Torah. Going back and forth is the process called medrash, and we then subdivide it because you have halachic ideas and non-halachic ideas. Yes? Is the midrash the same thing as the Talmud? No. The Talmud is a book that contains all of the discussions of the sages of Babylonia from around the year 200 to the year 500 of the oral Torah. So if you had sages, they lived in Babylonia between the years 200 and 500, and they spoke about oral Torah, and people thought that their conversation was important to remember, then it's in the Talmud, which means everything's in the Talmud. So where is it on this chart? Well, like I said, I'm not giving you a It's not a library. These are, these are categories. Right, so the Talmud contains all the categories. It's just because, yeah, if you have a bunch of rabbis sitting around and talking, right, are they going to move from these different things back and forth? Are they going to interact with the lachim back and forth? And then also engage in how those are in the written Torah and back yet? So it's all there. Every, this whole chart is in the Talmud. Okay. Yeah. Since all of these five non halachic sources came about at different times, how did you decide that they were going to be the five? Like, so, what I want to be honest with you is that I made this list up. Uh-huh. Because there is no actual, uh, I'm going to explain to you. In halacha, there really is a real taxonomy and a categorization. But because ideas bleed into each other so easily, you kind of have to, you kind of have to look at all of the ideas and kind of sort them into categories. So I decided, well, I don't want to give you just a category called not halacha. That's too vague. I don't want to give you, and they're saying, okay, so how, how fine-grained do I want to make it? Okay. So I could make a list of, I could break this up and say I want to actually subdivide this into seven. I want to, right? it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's like if, you, if you want to take any group of ideas and then subdivide it, you can subdivide it finer and finer and finer. But I figured, okay, a list of around five is four, I think, four to six. So I started thinking, okay, well, if I had to make a list of four to six distinct basic categories of ideas that you find in the non halakh section of the Torah, what would those things be? Well, and you see because... People who are engaging in ideas draw these distinctions between Chassidus and Kabbalah, between Kabbalah and Musr, right? These distinctions are drawn by the people explaining these ideas, so I figured, okay, these are probably a good list. Um, but one could 
Right. But what, but this is like, this is an after the fact. It's like if you're looking at a big art collection, you say, okay, I'm going to have to set up a museum and I want to have like four or five wings. So how do I organize the art pieces so that it makes some kind of sense? Okay. It's an after the fact kind of categorization, but it's useful. Okay. So if you look at the people who explain Chassidus, they will talk about the difference between Chassidus and these other things. If you look at the people who are teaching Chakir and Musa, they will talk about the differences between those things. So... I decided if I wanted a list of about four to six things, this would be a good list. I have taught this class at other times, and we've had longer lists and shorter lists, and I thought this would be, this is, to my current thinking, the best way. It's like a museum. Like I said, you can reorganize the pieces differently as long as you have some kind of coherent categorization of the work. Um, yes? Does everyone agree on this being, like, a part of the Torah? Like, would someone, like... No. So, like, someone would say Chassidus isn't part of the There were people who said Chassidus is not part of the ideas of Chassidus or not Torah. We called them Snagdim, opponents okay. of Chassidus. There were people who said Kabbalah is not part of the Torah. Um, I guess you could call them extreme rationalists. There are people who said Musa was not part of the Torah. They were called extreme halachists. There are people who said Chakir is not part of the Torah. I guess you could call them extreme. I mean, you're always going to find some subgroup of people that are so far into one particular <laughs> idea that they have a hard time seeing the validity on the other side. Can we talk about other people who think Jared Harris isn't part of the Torah? No, that's the only that's the only one that's not. That's the only one that's not. That's the only one that everyone's all on board with. But like, no, like, like the Rambam wrote books explaining how you're supposed to come to appreciate the spiritual nature of things, and other Jews had them burned because they thought they were heretical. Okay, so yeah, there's always if, if you want to if you want to think of it like like um, degrees of separation. You and I might disagree, but it's slightly, and you disagree with someone else slightly, and you, they disagree with someone else slightly. But if you go that chain long, and if you get to the two ends of the chain, can't even see the legitimacy of the other side, and that's where you get those extreme differences. And that's how someone can get enough Hasidic book because they're like, oh, it's not part of the Torah. Right. Like so, so so it's like. Like, yeah, so you, you, yeah, if you, if you link people up and say, they're slightly different, they're slightly different, they're slightly different, but over time, that slight difference in gray becomes a black and white difference, and then people, yes? How do you get, I mean, everyone agrees that Torah and Nabi and Torah. Um, how do you, and then like Talmud, as far as, no. No, not everyone did, no. And even Torah and Nabi and Kisubim, no. Really? Yeah. Do we count those people as like having a legitimate Jewish philosophy though? No, but you realize the tautology there. <laughs> there were the Samaritans, and, and they don't even hold of the whole Torah and Nevi'im and They're just the five books of Moshe and the Sefer Yeshua. Mm -hmm. So it's like basically, you basically, basically there there is a there is a um, the, the the demarcation for that has developed between what's called legitimate views and unlegitimate. Legitimate views mm -hmm. seems to have developed around the following: everything that's contained in the written Torah and oral Torah up to the end of the Talmud, yeah. you have to buy into. Right. That's press binding precedent, and you have to be keeping halacha in a recognizable form. And it seems to be that over time, all their differences, you know, people just agree to disagree. Right. But what's the difference between like Karites don't accept the Talmud as Torah, right? So, why is it that the vast majority of the Jewish world would say that Karites are not practicing Judaism versus people who are, as you said, misnagged, people who are opposed to Hasidus? Even people who are very passionate about Hasidus would generally say those people are practicing legitimate Judaism. Say the question again, because I, 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 in the middle it sounded like you shifted the question, so I wasn't sure what you're asking. Sorry. So, we, I, think, I think we can agree that, like, as a societal fact, 
Most people would say Karaites who don't accept the Talmud are not practicing a legitimate form of Judaism. Put a pin in that because I have to come back to that, but yeah. Okay. And then most people would say that Mitznagdim who reject Hasidists are practicing a legitimate form of Judaism. And even people who are passionate about Hasidists would still say that. So is it an arbitrary distinction? Or like how do we draw that line of like you can reject this as not Torah and still be a legitimate practicer or practicer? Practitioner. Practitioner. Practitioner? Like a doctor. You can still look, like be like doing legit Judaism without this part of the so, Torah. So, but so without this, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna t- I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you the 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 first off the Karaite thing is not so simple. That actually developed in the in the Middle Ages. Um, the, the Rambam was very involved in that, of really drawing that distinction, making it clear. That, that actually, in its day, that was just as controversial as all the other stuff. Um, the, the, the real answer to the question is, like, is that the, the most important part of the Torah is the halacha. And so as long as, at the end of the day, there can be, you can see the legitimacy in the other ways approaching halacha, um, there can be an agree, and there can be an a, 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 a agree to disagree, and that that seems to just be how the Torah operates. In other words, because Judaism, it's this is, it's wrong to say that there's nothing, there's no dogma that you have to believe, and that this is not true. Because there are halachas about what you have to believe, and those things are debated. But Judaism is primarily focused on how you live, and only a minuscule of that is certain things that you must believe or not believe. And that's very different than, say, Christianity, where it's primarily a religion of beliefs. And so when the beliefs become conceptually distinct, you end up needing to create different religions, and then you have these whole religious wars and things. And what has seemed to be the case throughout Jewish history is as long as the process that people are engaged in in dealing with the halachic part of Torah is recognizable to the two sides, they will eventually agree to see each other as legitimate, even if they disagree. That seems to have how it's been throughout Jewish history. And then what is halakha? So that's what we have to do. So it, it comes down to that. Halakha. Halakha. Yeah. Can I, can I follow up with like where do you draw a line if this is no longer recognizable? You don't. You don't. And usually there's always a little bit of gray area. And so at any right. point in history, you're going to have a small subsection of people that are in the gray zone. And that history is of the final arbiter. So for instance, the, reform, the, 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 the forebearers of the reform movement are actually quite religiously observant. But they had ideas that halacha was not actually binding. You did not have to keep Shabbos. And so if you looked at some of the early people who were the, for, who, who were the forefathers of the reform movement, they, they would look religiously observant. But the way they approached halacha after a generation or two made it unrecognizable. And so you can then retroactively see. So you always, at every point in history, you always have saying, your ideas are going to lead to the abandonment of halacha. Mm-hmm. And you might be right in that accusation, you might be wrong in that accusation, but the only way to know is over time, right? That, the Chassidim were accused of that as well. And, that, and one of the reasons why the whole debate died down after three generations because the reality is, okay, they're not abandoned. They don't, Chassidim don't abandon halacha. What about, like, Ethiopian Jews whose version of abandoned that, halacha? That, that, the Ethiopian Jews is a whole different issue. It has to do with, with the, the process of how lineage works in halacha, and I don't want to get into that. Okay. That's not, that's not a Torah issue. That's a people issue. Okay. Okay. All right, halacha. So halacha has two basic categories. So man, halacha is what you have to do, what you're not allowed to do, what you should do, what you should not do, what you're permitted to do, what you're not permitted to do. The two categories are Torah 
Torah law and rabbinic law. Torah law and rabbinic law. Let's first start with that distinction. What is there between Torah law and rabbinic law? Well, Torah law would be the stuff that God told us, rabbinic law is the stuff that the rabbis told us, right? Except that's not true. Yeah, that would be too simple. Okay. So, a, a quick civics lesson, okay? In any legal, remember, halacha is basically a legal system, okay? In any legal system, there are three basic components, and I'm borrowing off of uh, the founding fathers of the United States, but they're still, still more or less true. There is the legislative component, which is making law. Okay? Then there is the judicial component, which is adjudicating the law, deciding how the law should be applied. Okay? Um, and then there is the administrative, which is how the law is actually enforced. What are rabbis supposed to do? Legislate the halacha, adjudicate the halacha, or enforce, administrate the halacha? Which one? I would say judge, but I think you're going to say all three. They are all three. Yes. In fact, does anyone know what the word, would the, anyone know what the word rabbi means? Great. No, ra- rabbi means my master. Okay. That's what it means. Because they all great. They are great, but <laughs> and the idea is the idea is that there is a there is a there is a there is a um, a skill and a craft and an ethic and a, uh, of being involved in these processes and someone who is qualified to do has achieved the level of mastery. In Talmudic times, got a title. There were times before that they didn't give titles. In Talmudic times, they started giving titles. And the title they gave was Rab, which means right. master, and then it would be. Then my master that becomes, you put the yud at the end, becomes rabbi. Now we get our rabbis. Okay. And there is an actual procedure of how you have to be certified, and it's very complicated, and we're not having a history lesson, but to this day, that kind of a system remains in effect. And because of that, there are precise limits. What are the scope of the legislative and judicial and administrative powers of rabbis based on their qualifications, certification, etc.? Okay. In this sense, it is an actual formal clergy. So, for instance, I have a piece of paper at home which says that I am qualified to issue halachic rulings. I have such a piece of paper. Now, that piece of paper was given to me with the knowledge that I also have the wisdom to know what I'm qualified to rule and what I'm not qualified to rule, which is very limited because it's not something I practice and not something I've done a lot of, um, you know, like doctors do residency. So I haven't done a lot of residency in that. So therefore, unless it's a very simple matter, I will say ask a more professional rabbi than me because I do more of this stuff and a lot less of this stuff. But it's something that is relatively straightforward. I do know, and I, I do know how to, to do that. Okay? And there are people who are more qualified and less qualified and kind of like you have in any professional class of anything. Yes? Okay. So what about someone who is a more rabbi? One, are they even claimed to be a rabbi? No, two, because the reform, reform as a matter of principle denies that there's actual God-given Torah. Okay, so, so even conservative then? Conservative, this is what's into the recognizable thing. The, the, the conservative movement, and the conservative movement very briefly um, makes the claim that halacha, halacha 
doesn't have binding precedent. So the reform movement or the conservative movement, rabbis might say something which they have is that you're allowed to drive on Shabbos mm-hmm. to shul because shul is more important than the laws of burning on Shabbos. But that violates all yes. precedents in the Talmud. And so, and so you're kind of engaging this fall halachic process. It sounds like halacha, but if you look at the substance of the matter, what you're basically is rejecting halachic precedent. And so that's why the Orthodox do not consider them to be real rabbis. Okay. So, yeah. But like that's the same with the conservatives probably don't consider reform rabbis to be. Yes, actually. Right? Like, yes. I'm sure yes. That, that is, in fact, an issue. Okay. Yes. Okay. And are there people who consider you not to be a real rabbi? Well, well, the thing is like this, because because once you move outside into sort of these other groups, it's really a whole different ideology. You know, okay. what does rabbi mean to a reformist? I don't know what it means to a reformist. Yeah, in, 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 in orthodoxy, a rabbi means somebody who has achieved some level of mastery and authority to engage in some part of the administrative, judicial, or legislative process of Allah. That's what it means. Okay. So if you don't believe in there's a real binding halakhic process, then the word rabbi goes out the window. Yeah. Now, we have extended that to mean anybody who gets up and teaches you anything, but really, like, I know plenty of rabbis who are not technically rabbis because they just, they don't know how to do that. They know a lot of Chumash and they can explain wonderful ideas and very inspiring, very motivating, but they, they are, they've never studied how to actually administrate, legislate, or adjudicate halacha at all. Yes, and so very frustrating. So they're called rabbis by people, but they're not technically, in this sense, rabbis. Okay. okay. Fine. Torah law. Okay. So the rule is like this. If the rabbis are adjudicating the law, meaning they're deciding what the law really means, if they're, and, and we're just going to, we're administering the leaf separately because that's more of a societal function. If they are just deciding what the law means, but they say, we, it's not in our power to create the law, to legislate the law, that law came from God, then that's called a Torah law. So for instance, you are not allowed to cook on Shabbos. Did the rabbis legislate that? No. no. God legislated that, so that makes it a Torah law. But is there an open question as to what counts as cooking? And the rabbis are the ones who are supposed to adjudicate that. So is taking soup and putting it back on the fire on Shabbos after it's cooled down counted as cooking? Yeah. Well, it's actually the rabbis dispute that. Okay? So when the rabbis are only adjudicating the law but not legislating the law, the law was given from God down to Moshe, and they're only adjudicating the law, they're only deciding the scope of the law, then that's called Torah law. But if the rabbis are also legislating the law, they're coming up with the actual law itself, then we call that a rabbinic law. So, are you allowed to eulogize somebody on Hanukkah? Somebody died, you're allowed to have a eulogy at a funeral on Hanukkah? No. No. Where did that law, who legislated that law? Rabbis. The rabbis. So that's called the rabbinic law. In fact, the mitzvah, the holiday of Hanukkah itself, where did, who legislated that? Rabbis. The rabbis. Now, you're thinking, well, where, where do the rabbis get the power to legislate? Well, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is that the rabbis should legislate. That is an actually positive mitzvah in the Torah. Well, that's, yes. That goes into a dangerous path there. Why? Because I think a lot of people can make wrong arguments, such as, Reform rabbis. Well, but remember, a rabbi. Oh, they don't fall. Right, right, right. See, like this is what, like, right. I was raised reform, so I'm like a little right. So, about so, it, so, so, and it doesn't use the term rabbis. Okay, yeah. um, the rabbis, like I said, is, is late from a later period in history. Okay, um, 
but the, but the, there's a, there's actually a lot of mitzvahs, a lot of Torah law mitzvahs that deal with the rabbinic establishment, such as You have to appoint judges, you have to appoint legislators, and it is not by the, and this is by the appoint and not elect. Okay, um, and there and in fact we see in the Torah that Moshe appointed a high. It's called a court, but it's both a court and a legislative body of 70 sages, rabbis, and then lower bodies. And in exile, most of the system is very defunct. We have only until we're running on fumes, but what's left is what's left. So the mitzvahs in the Torah, giving the rabbis and actually requiring the rabbis to legislate, to, to, to adjudicate the laws that God legislated, we call those the 613 biblical laws, and to also legislate other laws as they see fit. Yeah. Where in Shoftim and Shoftim do you find legislative power? That, like, that, what? It sounds to me like adjudication and enforcement and no legislation. No, the, 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 the legislative, the, 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 the legislative is from, um, I forgot the, the exact quote of the Pasuk, but the, 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 the is, Asuma Shmeris Mishmarti. Make a garden for my garden. Make prohibitions to to cover my prohibitions. It's the it's the rabbinic formulation of something derived from Sukkim, Yes, I just don't remember. I just remember the exact wording in the pasuk. Yeah, it's a mishnah. There's, there's a bunch of these. It's a mishnah, but it, but but it's rooted in an idea in the pasuk. I just don't remember the pasuk because I'm talking my head. Yes. Would you mind just summarizing what the Torah and rabbinic law are? Did God make up the law and the rabbis are left to interpret it? Then we call it a Torah law. If the rabbis are the ones who made up the law and are the ones interpreting it, we call that a rabbinic law. Who gave the rabbis the power to interpret? Hashem. Who gave the power the rabbis the power to make up laws? Okay. The, and the reason why this distinction is made is because on certain technical matters, it makes a difference. 99% of cases, halacha does not care whether a law is a Torah law or a rabbinic law. It makes no difference. In very few scenarios, it makes a difference. I will give you one scenario. Actually, I'll let you guess. What do you think is a scenario where, Torah, where it's important to know whether it's a Torah law or a rabbinic law? Yeah. Wasn't there like a debate about like whether or not chicken was meat and dairy, and or like having certain separate plates? With yes. Life? And then that was decided at some point. Like yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know if that matters. That's a rabbinic law, actually. Whether chicken yeah. is there's debate whether they should make a ban on chicken and milk. Uh-huh. Um, no, but what, when is it important to know whether something is a Torah law or a rabbinic law? If, you, if God gives the power, gives the rabbis power to adjudicate and legislate, so then what difference does it make? Then the law is the law. Who cares which kind of law it is? If there's a temple standing. No. To break Shabbos? No. Can a Torah law override a rabbinic law? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can a rabbinic law override a Torah law? Mm-hmm. Also, yes. That's oh. true. Yeah. Oh. yeah. There are rules about this. There are rules about this. That doesn't. Okay, there are rules about this. Um, it depends on what kind of rabbinic law and what kind of biblical law, rabbinic, uh, biblical uh, Torah law. The the difference is usually in a case where there is a doubt. We are unsure. Let's say if I have, let's say two, let's say there's um, we're unsure if the law one way or the other way. If it is a Torah law, you're required to take the stringent opinion. If it is a rabbinic law, then the halacha follows the lenient opinion. What if the rabbis change their mind? That's fine. There's rules for that. Like, and what I want you to understand is that there have to be halachas for that too. There has to be halachas for what if the rabbi made a mistake? What if the rabbis change their mind? 
And they're, just like any functional legal system, there have to be procedures for that. So like in the future, the rabbis could say, we can all eat pork. No, because pork is a Torah law, and so they don't have the power to delegislate it. But you just said... Ah, I said it yeah. depends. Rabbinic law can do the following. It can prohibit something the Torah law allows. It can... It can prohibit temporarily something Torah law requires. So we're required to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The rabbinic law can prohibit that temporarily, like say only when Rosh Hashanah and Shabbos fall out on the same day. Mm. But they can't, they can't prohibit it permanently. The rabbinic law can never permit something that Torah law prohibits. So if God said no pork, the rabbinic law can never make it permitted. Okay, so that's explicit. Right, okay. so there... But, but I want you to, these are, there, there's actual, has to be a process, just like in any court system, in any governmental system, how do you legislate laws, how do you adjudicate laws, when is a ruling binding, when can it be overturned, there have to be laws for dealing with all these things, because it's treated as an actual, real legal system. So I'll give you an example. If you were to ask a rabbi a halacha question, and they have issued a ruling for you, are you allowed to go and ask another rabbi? Yes. But you have to tell the second rabbi the that, that, what, that you asked the first rabbi and what the first rabbi said. And now the second rabbi says like this, if I disagree with the first rabbi, well then I can't help you. But if I think that the first rabbi ignored precedent, in other words, there's a clearly well-known law and he just didn't take it into account, then his ruling was not valid and now I can override it. There's, what I want pointing out is that there's there's, there's procedural elements for this. It's not, just, it's not just people can make stuff and do whatever they want. And just like in, you know, if you're studying medicine, if you're studying law, if you're studying anything, you start to as you implement it in real life, there have to be rules on how this works. And so there's Torah and rabbinic laws. The rabbis have the power to legislate, and they also have the power to adjudicate the laws that God already legislated. Very quickly, because I want to finish. The way the rabbis adjudicate the law in the Torah law is they involve, they do two things. Sometimes they analyze the text and sometimes they make logical arguments. So in other words, if we don't know already what the law is, what God, when God made the law, we don't know the exact scope or regulation of the law, how do the rabbis then adjudicate that? Either they analyze the text or they make logical arguments. Now, if we're analyzing text and making logical arguments, can there be more than one valid way of doing that? Yes. Yes. So the rule is like this. If a rabbi gets up and says, I have a tradition that my teacher told me, that my teacher told me, that my teacher told me, going all the way back to Moses, that this is the law, done, discussion over. But if someone says, well, the law is like this, and I can prove it to you by a textual analysis that this is the scope of what God intended, or I can make a logical argument that if we rule this way over here, we have to rule like that over there, another rabbi says, okay, well, I have a counter-argument. And so the disputes in Torah law are about the logical and textual interpretation of the laws. But if someone claims this is a law I've received by tradition, there's nothing to debate. In rabbinic law, the rabbis are basically free to do whatever they want within certain constraints. And it basically has, there's three things. There are things that they prohibit to safeguard the Jewish people, either religiously or Practically, so for instance, just very quickly, we're not allowed to eat chicken and milk. Do you know why we're not allowed to eat chicken and milk? I don't know why we're not allowed to eat chicken and milk. Why the rabbis ban eating chicken and milk together? In case someone sees someone eating chicken and milk. Have you ever seen chicken? Yeah. 
Does it ever look like like cow or sheep? No. Okay, because that's not true. <laughs> what they're concerned. What? You yeah. What it, it, it's a, the concern is that someone will see you eating chicken and milk and say ah, so you can eat. Now, but because because in 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 Hebrew chicken is called meat. It's called basar flesh. And so they say ah, so you can eat milk and meat. You just can't eat. Milk and meat of the same species together, because it says in the Torah, the actual words in the written Torah are not to eat a kid in its mother's milk. And so there's a confusion that people will see their rabbi having cream in his chicken soup and conclude if you can have cream in your chicken soup, then you can have a cheeseburger as long as you use goat cheese and beef patty, because those are two different species also, because the Torah only says kid in its mother's milk. They're not going to appreciate all the nuances of the Torah law, and so the rabbi said, let's just make a simple law. If it's called meat and it's called milk, you can't eat them together. Also, your dishes would be complicated. You're like goat dishes. Right. So, so the issue here, the issue here is, the issue here is, and many rabbinic laws are based on this, on the fact that people are simplistic and people don't spend a lot of time thinking things through. And if I see something, think about how many things that people say. I saw my rabbi do it. Yeah, but do you know all the nuances of why your rabbi did that, and maybe what you're doing is slightly different? So a lot of times, the rabbi says, you know what? If people are going to misinterpret what people are doing, let's just ban certain things. Let's set certain standards, right? We don't make laws like in America to drive safe. We make laws like don't drive more than 20 miles an hour next to a school, right? Because that's enforceable, that's clear, and drive safe is not. So another thing that the rabbis legislate are things to enhance our lives, such as laws to help commerce work better, laws to make our religion more vibrant, such as prayers, blessings, holidays like Hanukkah. And the last thing to do, and this is my favorite thing, is that the, the rabbis also give sanction and approval to cus, grassroots customs. When the Jewish people, not the rabbinic establishment, start doing things which are conducive to the spirit of Judaism, the rabbis will give it its blessing and that becomes binding law. So there are many things, I'll just mention a few examples. There's a prayer called Halal that we say. The rabbis instituted saying of halal on certain days, but the Jewish people were like, we love this halal thing. Let's say mm-hmm. every Rosh Chodesh. And the rabbi's like, okay, people, if you want to do that, done. Now it's the law. Now you have to say halal on Rosh Chodesh. Okay? Another, one, another example. Um, many of the laws of Nida, as they actually are in the, in the Torah and as legislated by the rabbis, are extremely convoluted. You have to like have a degree in computer science to like work it all out. So do you know what the Jewish women said? What? We're gonna make it simple. We're just gonna make simple laws and it's very simple. If a woman bleeds, need applies, done, we're over. Okay. And the women did that, and the rabbi's like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's what you wanna do, and that became the law. So sometimes the law works the other way. Instead of the rabbis legislating the law, they're giving their after-the-fact stamp of approval to something that the people have legislated kind of on their own. And that's where you get many different localized customs as well. When did that become like a that particular, generalized? Yeah, I'm just curious. That, this principle or that particular law about Nida? Which one? That particular law. That occurred about 1,700 years ago. Yeah. Okay. We, know, we know exactly the era. We know the sages that, 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 that were there. Yes? Which one? You. Um, what was the first one you said? Sorry. The first one. The first one. So. <laughs> <laughs> the rabbinic law is that things to safeguard the Jewish people. They prohibit things to safeguard us. They enact things to enhance our lives. And they give retroactive approval to things that the people kind of implemented on their own. Yes. 
Does Torah law include anything besides the 613? No, that's basically, when we say the 613, so it's referring to the laws that were legislated by God. God legislated 613 laws, and then it's up to the rabbis to adjudicate the scope of those laws. Okay? So, and this is what, this is what the Torah is. And everything in the Torah is, fits on this chart somewhere. And usually it's not so nicely isolated. Usually it's a bunch of things being mixed together. That's why the Talmud is the most quintessentially Jewish book, because it has all of it mixed together, like a chalot. <laughs> yes. So, so if someone doesn't follow halakha, then are they Jewish? Yes. That's is like saying if someone breaks the law, are they a citizen? Well, that, but yeah, I was just asking. Right, it's like that. Okay. The law, being required to follow the law is not the same thing as compliance with the law. Now, that doesn't mean they get the right... You can't be, you can't be a criminal... I mean, in most normal countries, you can't be a criminal and also be part of the government, right? That should, that, that, there's something wrong with that. Okay. So, if you are breaking halacha in a... Frig, in, in, a, in, a in an overt manner... <laughs> I just can't get it out of my mouth right now. If you're breaking halacha in an overt manner, you obviously can't be part of the rabbinic establishment. That won't work. So, like, they can't decide what other people will do? Yeah. Like, if, like, like yeah, I mean, the... the you know, if they if they if someone sins and repents and changes their ways, that's different. But yeah, if someone is if someone is clearly you know defying halacha, they can't also be part of the rabbinic establishment to determine halacha. That that's ridiculous. Okay. That goes to reform and conservative, not being really the rabbis. Someone else had a question, then I'll. Okay. What I want everyone just to take away from this is that, just like if you like get an anatomy chart and someone breaks up the human body into a bunch of things, it's helpful to categorize things. But in real life, it's all mixed together and working together, okay? These distinctions are helpful for understanding what's going on, but in real life, the Torah is not like a filing cabinet. In real life, all these things get mixed together, and in discussing a halacha, we might throw in a non-halachic idea, and what this does sometimes is confuses people, it's like someone might, myself, use a halachic example to illustrate a point in chassidus, and then someone will ask a follow-up question about halacha, and I'll say, well, it's not halacha class, ever happened to be you or vice versa? Are you learning the laws of Shabbos? And someone will ask like a, uh, you know, well, why are we supposed to keep Shabbos question, which is about sensing yourself to spirituality. And like, well, this is not that class. It's like if you're studying the heart, you do need to understand about the rest of the body, but the main focus is still one thing. It's helpful to have these categories, but if they become too rigid, then they're unhelpful. So, kind of use them wisely. All right? Okay. I will be going now. Have a wonderful Shabbos. And I will see you next time. Thank you.